0: Father, would you open the word to us? Would you strengthen us, God? Lord, we have worshiped into your presence. We thank you for just the healing uh, presence, the anointing of God that's here right now. And Lord, we need your word. We want you to disciple us. We don't need me discipling us. We need you discipling us through your word. And so we're gonna follow you and listen to you and watch you now. And we ask you to open our spiritual eyes and ears. Give us soft hearts. And Lord, make us strong as disciples of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 All right, um, we're going to John 1. I'll start at verse 43. Or actually, I'm going to start at verse 35. We are at the Jordan River. This is uh, probably hundreds of people. I mean, when, when, when it's described in other Gospels, you've got, it says all of Judea was there. All of Jerusalem is out there. So you've got a, a large numbers of people. I, I remember I told you that the Jordan River, we're probably at the south end of the Jordan River is where I think this took place. The Jordan River is from its headwaters to the place where it dumps into the Dead Sea. That's only a linear line of, of 80 miles. But the river itself flows 200 it's just like a ribbon. It goes back and forth and back and forth. It's, this is the lowest place on Earth, uh, planet Earth, 1,300 and some feet below sea level. And uh, so it's just, it's just trying to find its way down something, you know, and it wanders. And so all of this is full of trees and bushes and, and wild animals, honestly. It's a dangerous place. Uh, it, it was called the Zor uh, in Hebrew. And it's this, this, this area down here. So there's place to camp. There's all of this uh, among the trees and try to keep the wild animals out of your tent. Uh, but these people have come out and they're listening to John and he's baptizing their um, people and calling them to repentance. So this is where the setting is. And we saw that... Uh, a group of people came out and, uh, from the religious leaders. They were upset with John and confronted him and said, basically, what are you doing? And then it says at verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at, at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Actually, it's the next day after the next day. He said that the day before. And, he, uh, and the disciples heard him. This would be Andrew and John. And they followed Jesus and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. A debate as to which, which kind of clock they were using, but it was either four in the afternoon or 10 in the morning. I'm inclined to think it was 10 in the morning. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Who recalls what Cephas means? Yeah, it means a, a rock. Yeah. And, and that's the Aramaic word for it. He didn't call him Petros. He didn't call him Pebble or anything like that. He looked at him and he called him a rock. He says, uh, you've been an unstable man. You've been, you're you're, 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 you're all, all this kind of thing. He, he knew that about him, I think, uh, intuitively, uh, spiritually. And then he said, but you're going to be a solid man. The kind of man people build their lives on. And, it, and the next day, he purposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip. Notice Jesus found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Now notice the total change of opinion Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. You know, Jesus answered and said to him, because, can't you see the smile on the Lord's face as he says this? Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You'll notice we're finding disciples here. It only took two days for Jesus to gather the first five and probably six. John doesn't mention James, but he's undoubtedly in that equation. Of the 12 apostles, he would send out into all the world a few days later. Two days. It started on the first day with John and Andrew, following him back to his lodging place. Then Andrew found his brother Peter and John probably found his brother James, though his modesty is such, his humility, that he doesn't mention himself or his family. And though John doesn't like to mention himself or his family, then on the second day, Jesus found Philip, and then Philip found Nathanael and brought him to meet Jesus. And in that brief period of time, Jesus recruited half of the key leaders he would mentor for the next three and a half years, half of the elders who would lead his church after he returned to heaven. And the men he met on those two days were arguably the the strongest names among the 12. Andrew, Peter, John, James, Philip, and Bartholomew, who is Nathaniel. These are the names mentioned most often in the Gospels these were the authors of the two of two of the four gospels actually three because Peter was the source of information for Mark's gospel these names authored nine of the books of the new testament Paul and Luke wrote most of the rest how did such a special group of people meet Jesus in such a short period of time why were they all gathered there in one location The answer, of course, is that they'd come to the Jordan River to be baptized. They were part of a crowd of people who were doing all they knew how to do to draw closer to God. This wasn't a random group. It was a gathering of people who were hungry for God and who were willing to act on that hunger. Most had walked for days to get there and were camping wherever they could find shelter in order to listen to a prophet. Tell them that they were sinners who needed to repent because the Messiah was coming soon. Now picture this. They're out, in the, they're out in the lowest place on planet earth. And if it's not a very small period of time during the winter, this is really hot weather. Uh, they're, they're camping out there with who knows the scorpions and whatever else is living in the bushes. Uh, trying to find shelter. Listening to a guy tell them, you, you brood of vipers. Who, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? I mean, how, if I thought that would work, I would, I would just be so into that. Can't you say, you brood of vipers. You know, people just pouring in. Really, Tell us again, tell us again. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee? It's a special group at that river, I'm telling you. that would come out. They're hungry for God. And they're willing to honestly engage their condition. Notice this. They're willing to be told, you are not ready to meet the Messiah. It's not a proud group. Proud group's up back up there trying to figure out what to do with John. Probably arranging with Herod to arrest him. But this is not who's there. They are hungry for God and they are uh, allowing this prophet to really speak to them. So when one of these hung, those hungry people met Jesus and realized who he was, they immediately could think of someone else who also had come to that gathering who was as hungry for God as they were. The crowd which was gathered at that riverbank wasn't made up of Israel's rich and powerful. It was probably a strange assortment of people from every walk of life. But from God's perspective, listen, they were the spiritual elite of the nation. Many in that crowd knew they were poor in spirit. Many were hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Every one of them had been willing to interrupt their busy life and walk into the Judean desert to spend time seeking God. Of course, not everyone felt this kind of hunger, and who felt this kind of hunger and thirst was able to make the journey to the river. All the spiritually hungry in Israel weren't there. But among those listening to John the Baptist, the percentage was high. Spiritually speaking, this group was full of potential disciples. When, when you talk about potential. You know, as a pastor, you often you'll meet somebody and they're coming to the Lord, and you look at them and you go, "Man, you've got so much potential." You know, at you've either they're talented or they're, they're whatever they are. You know, they got potential, and you see potential. You know what I've learned? Potential in five dollars will buy you a latte. That kind of potential means nothing. In fact, arguably, the more potential, the less likely you are to do anything. I don't know what that is. It's a a strange relationship. Spiritual potential. What what, what makes a man or a woman a real potential disciple? It's in here. It isn't their talent. It isn't their education. It isn't their background. It's what is it? It's their heart. It's their heart. People you think are going to go on and do great things don't. People that look with a person you you hardly noticed in the corner go on and tear up the world. Why? It's here. See, in in the spirit, God doesn't need our potential. He isn't relying on your potential. So what? What he needs is a willing person. What he needs is a surrendered heart. What he needs is somebody who cares enough to stay with it and and, and lay hold of, of what he has for them. So I want I want to argue that this group at the riverbank, it's, it's probably a very strange group of people. I mean, there's no nobody has to come out there. But somebody's laid down their plow, they've laid down their fishing nets, they've 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 laid down their 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 maybe they've asked their sister to take the children. And they're out there listening to this guy preach. And they're getting baptized and they're surrendered and they're expecting the Messiah. This is an elite group, not in their outward, but in there. I want to retell you this uh, account of, of, of Nathaniel. I haven't mentioned it in here, but if you follow the Bi- daily Bible study, I've told you. It appears that we, we probably can tell what days these things are happening on uh, based on the wedding that will take place in Cana. Can- Weddings took place on Wednesdays, basically. Um, I explained it in the study. So if you count backwards, that group of leaders came out and talked to John on Thursday. John looked up when he saw Jesus returning and and, and said, Behold the Lamb of God on Friday, which is interesting because that's the day he was crucified. And then on on Saturday, which would have been Sabbath, that's the day that that, uh, Andrew and John followed Jesus into his camp and they spent the Sabbath basically talking about spiritual things. And then the next day, when it says he's going to go, into, uh, he's going to go into, back into Galilee, that would have been Sunday or the first day of the week in the Jewish week. He would have headed back on that day. Jesus determined that it was time to leave Judea and return to Galilee. But before he left the area, he located a man named Philip. He may have met Philip earlier while talking with others who gathered near the Jordan to listen to John the Baptist. But it's absolutely certain that these men from Bethsaida... Uh, Andrew, John, and Peter knew Philip well. When we go to Israel, we go to Bethsaida. They found it now. It, wasn't, it was only in the last, I don't know how many years, they knew where Bethsaida was. But they found it, and they've been excavating it. It's a village of, of, of maybe uh, 300 to, to 600 people, probably 60 families. Uh, everybody knows each other. Probably half of the village is related to each other. These kids grew up together. I mean, so... There's no mystery in this. Peter, Andrew, James, John, they know Philip all their lives. So they may well have said, told, told Jesus about Philip. What's particularly notable about Philip is that Jesus himself actually took the initiative to go out and find him. And then formally invited him to be his disciples with the word, follow me. At that point in time, being Jesus' disciple did not mean that these men had to leave their homes and occupations to accompany him wherever he went. That level of discipleship would come later. For now, it meant walking with him back to Galilee, a journey which probably took about three days. On that same day, Philip went out and found a man named Nathanael of Cana, a town located only a few miles from Nazareth. While John calls him Nathaniel, the other Gospels and Acts always place someone named Bartholomew, son of Tomai, next to Philip, when they list the 12 disciples. Pardon me, the 12 apostles. Though there is no absolute proof that Nathaniel is Bartholomew, it seems almost certain he was. Philip said to him, "We have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law, and also the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth." Now you need, this is important. The two towns, Nazareth and Cana, were situated very close to one another. So close, I think it's about three and a half miles. So close that Jesus would soon attend a wedding there to to which Mary, his mother, had also been invited. Judging from the fact that she felt a sense of responsibility to help the host family when their supply of wine ran out, it seems this was the wedding of a family friend. So Nathaniel's comment about Nazareth Can anything good in character, morally honorable, pleasing to God, be from Nazareth? Was not a mean remark. It was an honest observation about a spiritually troubled village that he personally knew very well. When we go there, we go to Nazareth, of course, and we pass through Canaan. You know, it's it's still there. It's now with a K. It's spelled with a K. I mean, we drive through Cana and we go to, to Nazareth. So these these villages are, are close by to each other. So you, you got a picture that Nathaniel is from like three and a half miles away from where Jesus is. And they probably, many people, all work in this town called Sepphoris, which was the capital city for Herod Antipas. He was building lots of work there. So they, when Philip says, the guy's from Nazareth. Nathaniel is, what? Nazareth? Now, now, follow this. Nazareth was the village from which Mary had to flee when she became supernaturally pregnant with Jesus. Nazareth was the village where people would soon rise up in anger and try to kill Jesus. Nazareth was the village where Jesus' own brothers would mock him and accuse him of being ambitious. Nazareth was a village in which Jesus could do very few miracles because of their unbelief. In answer to Nathanael's remark, Philip could only say, well, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said, behold, an Israelite in whom guile, meaning deception, treachery, manipul- manipulating people by lying is not. That's the literal uh, word order. Nathanael heard him say this and replied, well, how do you know me? Obviously, the two men did not know one another, so in effect, Nathanael was asking Jesus, how would you know whether I have good or bad character? We don't know each other. And Jesus answered by speaking prophetically to him, using a gift of the spirit, which Paul would later call a word of knowledge. He told Nathanael something which would have been impossible for a human to have known apart from divine revelation. Apparently, sometime before that meeting, Nathanael had been sitting in the shade of a fig tree, probably praying, and maybe even asking deep questions of God. We're not told, but his response was immediate and revealing. Please notice, he reacted with faith, not shame. So that special moment must have had to do with God and was an encounter about which only God could have known. Instantly, all doubts Nathaniel had about the Messiah coming from the troubled village of Nazareth disappeared. Jesus had just finished describing Nathanael as an honest man, one who didn't hide his true feelings. And now we listen to him respond to Jesus. As we listen, we see an honest heart at work. He boldly told Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He went from skepticism to full faith in only a moment of time, which tells us he was a man who was genuinely searching for the truth. He instantly recognized that only God could have revealed to Jesus the hidden conversation that had taken place beneath that fig tree. And for Nathanael, that was all the proof he needed. As the Gospel of John progresses, we'll see Jesus again use the word of knowledge to reach a Samaritan woman by the well, and after the resurrection, to break down Thomas's doubt. Jesus seemed both surprised and delighted by Nathanael's outburst. He seemed amazed at how quickly this man believed. Undoubtedly, Nathaniel did not yet understand the suffering that lay ahead for Jesus or for him, yet his willingness to move toward the light, in this case, Jesus' identity, was impressive. Jesus responded by saying, because I told you, I saw you underneath the fig tree, do you believe? Greater things than these you shall see. And then he described for Nathaniel one of those greater things. I want you to see the heart of that man. He's a classic example of what's out there at the river. Do you know situations where someone has seen a real miracle and has not responded like that? Not everybody who sees a miracle instantly says, oh, I believe. Would you notice, just, just notice this. All Jesus said, word of knowledge. He says, "How do you know me?" And Jesus says, "I saw you under the fig tree." Now the, the, I, I, I believe that Nathaniel was actually reading from the passage in, in, in the Old Testament about Jacob's dream, because that's the wording that Jesus will now quote from. And Jesus says, "I saw you under the fig tree." That is all it took for Nathaniel. He knows. That had to have been revealed by God. No one else could have known what he was talking, that he was having this prayer time. No one else could have known that what was going on in his heart in that hidden moment. And instantly says, you're the son of God. That is a potential disciple. That's a hungry man. I want you to see the heart of that guy. Later on in this gospel, John will record some statements by Jesus that many have found puzzling. Statements that have often been badly misinterpreted. Yet they contain a profound truth that we need to hear. Listen, and I want you to read them with me, if you would. Here we go. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who has sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Next. No one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Next. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. One more. I have manifested your name to men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. What do you hear in all of those? What, what is, what is what are the theme in those, those verses? The Father gives people to Jesus. Do you see that? Yeah. Yeah, people are a gift. Those that belong to the Father come to me. The Father has given these to me as a gift. These and other passages speak of God the Father giving certain people to His Son as a gift. In other words, coming to the Father through repentance and faith prepares people spiritually. To believe in Jesus. How do you come to the Father? This whole group at the river was coming to the Father. They were coming. They were drawing toward the Father. They were drawing toward God as far as they knew how. Which was repent and trust Him to send a Savior. That's what they're doing. So people who began to move toward what they know. Who began to move toward the light they have. Those people the Father will lead to His Son. And give to his son as a gift. In this case, it's those who at least wanted to go out to the Jordan River to be baptized. Because they were hungry and thirsty for God. It was the people in Israel who were humble enough to repent. And who had enough faith to believe that God would fulfill his promise to send the Messiah. And Nathaniel is a great example of such a person. Notice, he is not spiritually passive. He'd already taken a bold step toward God by traveling to hear John. He has integrity. He is honest about his own spiritual condition. And undoubtedly, he was one of those who were being baptized. What are they out there doing? Confessing their sins. This is an honest person. This is not a a, a blame everybody else. I'm a victim. It's everyone else's fault. These guys are going out going, I'm a sinner. And they're being baptized. He has faith in the God of the Bible. Though there were many passages he didn't understand, he appears to, it appears he was, chose to meditate on the word of God rather than avoiding it out of frustration. What's he doing under that fig tree given what Jesus, and I, I didn't take time to finish it, uh, explain it. I will next week. What, what happened in that vision, Jesus draws the wording exactly out of the passage about Jacob's dream. He, I mean, quote word for word. So he's talking about that. I have no question. That's, so that's what Nathaniel's out there meditating on, this ladder that was set with its remember the base on the earth and it went up to heaven and the angels of God were, it says not descending and ascending, they were ascending and descending. That's bizarre. And then he says, "It's me. I'm the ladder." So Jesus is going right into the man's heart, into the inner secret place of meditation, and saying. I heard you. Ooh. Would you follow that guy? Yeah. Yes, I would too. I am. Uh, when, when he saw a miracle, he boldly acknowledges it. He didn't look for natural explana- explanations. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples of this. This, this, isn't, this, you, this, might, this is more profound than you realize. I'm going to tell you two different, two different, two different miracles. One, I I was in a service, and uh, I don't do this. You know, I don't do this a lot, but I had a word of knowledge about eyes. In fact, I saw them, and I saw two eyes, and I saw this pink sort of, and it was an unhealthy kind of pink rim around them. And I'm looking at this these eyes, and and I and I, Lord, you know, held it a while, and there they are. And all right, I said, excuse me, everybody, I just need to say this. Is anyone here got eye issues, eye problems? I feel like the Lord wants to heal your eyes. And uh, one hand went up in the back, and this older lady, and and, she, and, I, and I didn't ask her, interview her, bring her up, anything like that. just said, people, those of you around, would you, uh, would you lay hands on her right now? And from the front, I led, and we just prayed for her and went on. I didn't know what happened until a while later, her, her daughter... She was actually a visitor. It's not a person I knew. And um, her daughter came to me and she said, you need to know what happened to my, to my mom when you prayed." She said, my mother was having um, macular degeneration and, and very seriously to the point that her, her doctor was teaching her how to go blind because her, the, you know, the, this, that macula, that surface detaches from the back. And um, it's not a reversible process. I mean, once it's going on, it's just going on. The eyes decaying. And, and so he was teaching her how to go blind. Well, in, after that prayer, her sight returned and she was healed. Awesome. To the point that that miracle was written up in the American Journal of Medicine and, and, and uh, as, a, as one of the most remarkable remissions anyone yeah. has seen. Now, I said to this, this, the, the, her daughter, I said, wow, that is cool. I said, I, I imagine she's really full of faith now. And, and, her, and her, her face was a little down, and she said, well, no, not really. I said, what do you mean not really? And she said, well, my mom actually decided that it must have been the carrot juice that she was drinking. That I'm not making this up. You can't make this stuff up. Um, she, act, you know, what do you have to do for that woman to show her that God's alive? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Uh, she was a churchgoer of sorts. I mean, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But boy, here her, is church praise for her eyes. They restore and it's carrot juice. Now, let me compare that to another miracle that actually took place shortly, uh, uh, just ver- in, within the same zone of time. I had another, uh, I was in a, the service and I, and I saw a rash, a skin rash on the neck and uh, held it a minute, I got this word, okay, skin rash on the neck and finally I said, all right, has anyone here got a skin rash on your neck? No hands went up, that's always fun. Yeah. You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> so as I was saying, you know, um, and I, and I, but I held it and I had a real strong feeling on this one and I said, you know, I am not trying to just cover myself. If I'm off, I'm off. But I said, I, I feel like I should pray for this and so bear with me if you would. I, I, we need to pray. I do believe there's a rash somehow and so just join me. And so we prayed against this skin rash. What I, what I didn't know, uh, Two things. Actually, I, I had a woman in the church who I, who I knew, but she was I mean, a very beautiful woman. And she'd always wear these high collars. And I had no idea. Well, she had a, apparently a, a rash in her neck and it was healed. But that that's beside the point. Um, one of our young teens had brought his friend to church that day. And I, I did, and, and he had taken and he was had it was working in the childcare. And so he took his friend in with him into the childcare room. Uh, he never passed through the auditorium. I never laid eyes on this young man. I've never seen him in my life. And we uh, he, so he went into the child care room, and they could hear the service on, on the sound system. And as I was praying, what I didn't know is this friend of his had a horrible uh, is it, um, eczema? to the point that you couldn't even see where his lips began and the eczema ended, you know, this kind of thing, um, it, around his neck. He was just covered all over his, and his arms would bleed. And the, I, I, didn't, I never laid eyes on this, this young man. And so he's in there listening to this as we're praying for this thing. By Wednesday of that week, the, the thing is dried up, and it is starting to peel off, and they're starting to peel strips of this, this junk off of his neck. And um, that following Sunday, his whole family is sitting in that front row <laughs> looking. Now, what you need to know is his family is, he, are, are gypsies. And when you get one gypsy, you get 20. It's, it's wonderful. It is. I mean, they got family ties. And so here's this whole family just going. Now, here's the backstory. story. His mother was raised on the carnival. And one of the things in the carnival that they would do is if you would go into the healing tent and claim a healing, that uh, the fake preacher would give you money afterwards. I think in her day, it was $4 a a healing testimony if you'd do it. So here's a woman who's tremendously jaded, tremendously uh, damaged about the word of knowledge and miracle healing. I mean, she's seen nothing but the false, you know, sham of that kind of stuff. And then her son goes to church and there's this word of knowledge, you know, what could be worse about (laughs) healing and then they're peeling the stuff off of him and he is completely healed of this junk. Um, I mean, isn't isn't that like God? I mean, this is so God. is like, let me, let me show you the real thing, sweetheart. So that, I want you to notice how they respond. Next week, that, that Sunday, they're all in the front row. Looking at me with like, who are you? As time went on, that young man's mother and father became four square ministers. Both of them. Yeah. Notice a miracle in itself won't do the work. If you don't have the heart, if you aren't searching for and have that kind of honesty, that kind of, if God, if you show me the truth, I'll walk in it. If you're that kind of person, when you see an indisputable moment like that, boom, you're in. That's Nathaniel. But if you aren't, you can have something they write up in the American Journal of Medicine and you Still won't believe. Please note. A miracle in itself isn't enough. Because he had already begun pursuing the light. God gave him. The light God gave him. Nathaniel had no trouble accepting Jesus. Once he saw that God was with him. He became one of the gifts. I want you to notice. This is one of the gifts. The father gave to his son. Disciples. Disciples, people sort themselves. Those who are hungry for God do things that people who aren't hungry for God don't. Enormous crowds listened to Jesus preach. During his ministry, thousands came to him for healing, deliverance, and even to have their children blessed. But only a fraction of those actually went on to become disciples. Those who would believe in him and serve him for the rest of their lives. What we're observing take place during those two days by the Jordan River is not a matter of God playing favorites. It is a matter of Him knowing ahead of time those who would become true disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus' church would need such people to carry on after He ascended. The faith would be passed on from one generation to the next by disciples. Say disciples. Disciples. Not large crowds. When we talk about the, the youth camp that's coming up, you realize how important that is? It isn't, you have a camp packed. That's wonderful. But what will pass the faith on to the next generation and to the next generation beyond them are those young men and women who really have this and become disciples of Jesus Christ. You can have arenas full of people and it's gone like the, like, a, like a fog evaporating in the morning sun. It means nothing. In terms of the viability of the church of Jesus Christ. It's these kind of people who carry the faith from generation to generation. Disciples would be the building blocks for the future. So the father brought them to Jesus. And these are the ones with whom he spent most of his time. These are the ones to whom he explained the deep truths. These are the ones he taught how to minister as he did. These are the ones he prayed for, along with those who would become disciples through them. He looked forward into the future and saw you. These are the ones to whom he promised answered prayers. These are the ones he said would bear much fruit. When we read about the disciples in the Gospels, we often focus on their weaknesses and failures, particularly Peter. But Peter's foolish mistakes were an expression of his hunger to learn. He was so hungry to understand that he was willing to give wrong answers to Jesus' questions, and did. He, he, was, he, was, he was willing to give wrong, to questions. He was willing to try something and fail, such as walking on the water. We all laugh at the fact as he goes under, but man, he did walk on water. That's more than I've done, I can tell you that. But it was that very quality of eagerness that released him to grow. In time, he became the most significant, one of the most significant apostles of the early church. Without doubt, Peter is a primary leader in the early church. Peter and John, these are the two uh, real uh, leaders. If all we focus on is their weaknesses, we miss the most important facts about these disciples. These were the ones who left their homes and families to follow him. These were the ones who stayed loyal to him, even as the religious and political leaders grew hostile. These, it's true, all but John hid during the crucifixion. Yet in the long run, every one of them, except Judas Iscariot, remained faithful to Jesus for the rest of their lives. And all died a martyr's death, except John, who was miraculously protected from execution. We make fun of doubting Thomas. And Thomas had his struggles. But do you know that that man carried the faith all the way to India? To this day, there are Thomasite Christians in, 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 in India. How did he die? They shot him full of arrows. That's a disciple, folks. That's a man who's got it in here. Yeah, we, we mock his doubting and his struggle. But boy, when it took, it took in that man. So when he looks at you and me with our doubts and our struggles and our issues, that's not a problem for him. The issue is the heart. Do you love him? Are you you and I walking in integrity? Will we embrace the truth when we see it? Because if we will, man, we're a gift from the father to the son. We're, We're the bride. What does all of this have to do with us? Well, if we're already disciples, it shows us a very important truth about how to fulfill our assignment. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gave us this command. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Say that. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Notice what we're not to do. We're not told to make crowds. We're not told to do uh, whatever. We're told to do what? Make it's these people. It's these people that is what matters. They're the ones that will continue the faith. Go and make disciples of all the nations. The process of finding and training disciples didn't stop when Jesus left. We are supposed to keep on doing what he did. Just like Andrew found Peter and Philip found Nathaniel. We're supposed to find those whom the Father has drawn to himself. And then introduce them to Jesus. Someone found us. And now God wants us to find others. Notice our assignment is not to gather crowds, though that may be part of the process. But to make disciples. Our job is to look for those who are looking for God. To look for those who are looking for God. Do you hear this? And that's not everybody. Many are not looking for him, at least not yet. In fact, in some times and in some places, it's only a very few. They're the ones who are not spiritually passive. They're the ones who are willing to honestly face their spiritual condition. They're the ones interested in what the Bible has to say and may even have tried reading it, though they may not have understood what they read. They're the ones who will acknowledge a miracle when they see one and don't quickly resort to natural explanations. Let me stop there for a minute. Years ago, Mary and I were pastoring at a church in, in Oak Harbor, Washington. And um, I think we started there in 1978. Mary would say 1979. Anyway, but we it's one of those two. It's right in there. At 78, thank you. Uh, 79. Do I hear July? Uh, anyway. Um, it was just a little group in a house um, uh, when when we went there. The supervisor uh, was was named Roy Hicks Sr., and he and his wife Margaret. And there were only sixty four square churches in the entire Northwest District, which went all the way to Montana. And you know, is was, was, there just wasn't it was wasn't. So he had the time to visit each church each year. So he, he and Margaret would come. They usually come on a on Friday night or Saturday. And, and then they'd um, take us, you know, to to uh, to lunch or breakfast. And, uh, and then Margaret would spend the day with Mary and, and and Roy would spend the day with me. And we just you'd talk and how, how are things going? And he'd, he'd sort of disciple you. And uh, then he'd speak on Sunday morning, and then they'd they leave, and and they'd come once a year, and it was it was a, it was a blessing. That man was full of, of of wisdom and sayings. I still, I Mary still quotes him. We I still quote him. But one of the things he said to me was really interesting. He says, you know, he says I'm I'm in uh, these churches each year, and he says. One of the pastors will come out inevitably and say, with his arm around some guy, and he'll say, "Um, um, Roy, I want to introduce you to so-and-so. He says, I'm I'm discipling this guy. And he says, I'll come back the next year. And almost without fail, that guy's run off with somebody else's wife or something. (laughs) He says, I have come to the conclusion that we do not know who their disciples are. And he said, so the solution." is disciple the whole church, and you're bound to hit one. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that? Yeah. It, it, this hidden thing of the heart, people will talk, some people talk a fabulous game. They are oh so spiritual, but you got to watch the feed. And he, and he says, Here's, I said, well, how do you know who they are? He says, and he had a southern draw. He says, they're the ones that uh, follow you to the car. <laughs> And boy, did that ring a bell. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. And it's the ones who, they're hungry, they're interested, they want to talk about these things. They, you, know, you know those people, right? It's in them. This isn't something God does to us. It's something we do. It's choices we make. You, can, you and I can choose to be a disciple. But there's a price to it. A huge one. And that's where the problem comes, is often people say, I want to be, and then they count the cost and go, nah, I can't pay that, I can't pay that. I got other things got to do. Who are these disciples? It's inside the heart of people. By watching these, for these potential disciples, see, now, you and I need to be such disciples, but that's our issue. But, so, but we also, you and I need to be watching for them. Who, who in this room did Jesus tell to go and make disciples to? Yeah, exactly. So we need to be watching with these kinds of eyes. Watching for these potential disciples. We're not, we're not saying God doesn't want everyone to come to him and become his son's disciple. He does. But he's not the one who decides this. We are. Yes, he's reaching out to every person and we should never give up praying for even the most resistant individual we know. But God isn't the one who puts spiritual hunger in the human heart, at least not without our permission. Like it or not, some people are looking for God and some aren't. And the lesson we learn from these two intense days by the Jordan River is that people who are looking for God are a special group of people. And we need to watch carefully for them and then introduce them to Jesus as soon as possible. Where do you find a Jordan River Bank? Where where are those places in our current life where you find tender hearts, where you find hungry people? I'll I'll submit to you one. One, one, one of the uh, missionaries we have calls it the 414 window. And it's between the ages of 4 and 14. 80% of all human beings on planet Earth come to Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. What percentage did I say? 80. Now think about that. 80% of those who come to Christ do so between the ages of 4 and 14. What does he call it? Childlike, that childlike heart, that softness. God, God wants everybody, and there's a softness and a tenderness and a willingness to believe in children. And if any church, any anybody who misses this, may may I point out that probably the most important area of discipleship of all is parenting. It's parenting. You're not just raising the kid and keeping it alive, though that must, I must say that's a goal that any of us parents who've had them go, yes, you didn't die. But, but it's to raise disciples, to raise disciples, teaching them the word. Walk, I mean, that is pure and raw discipleship at its best and deepest form. Our, our children's classes, our camps, our ministries to these children—that is a huge priority, if we have the eyes to see it. People that follow you to the car, watch for people who are hungry, watch for people who have this in them. It's, it's, you say, you, they're often not the people you would have thought. They're not the—they did they make these decisions. Years ago, when I would plant a church, I had a simple system. I would have a service on Sunday morning, always in some rented place. I've been in, you name it, uh, rental places. And then I would have a Sunday e- evening service in our home. In a small church, you're planting one, you can fit everybody in. And it just invited people. It would be a believers meeting. I'd have my guitar and a Bible, and we'd just talk about whatever the Lord led. I didn't usually prepare a message for it, just we'd sit and... Worship a little bit and see where the Holy Spirit led us. And I would simply watch for those people who would show up. Because, you know, you've already been to church once. You've you've done your, your duty. You know, you've done the church thing. So the ones who would come again had a special motivation, didn't they? Everybody's tired on Sunday night. Everybody wants to watch whatever it was, you know, whatever but these people would get in the car and they'd come and then I would disciple them I'd teach them everything I knew about walking in the spirit and we'd worship together and pray for each other and build relationship and those people inevitably became the core of that church that would then lead the main services and all they would be the people why? and I didn't notice I didn't decide all I did is give an opportunity and the hungry came if I push everybody into it, if I demand they come, I get the wrong people. I get people who have guilt-ridden. <laughs> That's not the group you want. <laughs> but the ones when you just say, hey, we're serving dinner. Want to show up? You're welcome to. The hungry will come. People sort themselves. People sort themselves. Father God, we would be hungry people. And we would also have eyes to see those whom the father has drawn to himself and is giving to his son as a gift. Lord, would you help us see these things to understand, Lord, who it is who's hungry, who it is who's longing for more of you and to not evaluate that person in our own mind about their potential, but to allow that heart to be the issue. And Lord, that we would truly disciple those who are hungry, those who have that heart. And Lord, we would say to you today, as we come to the Lord, your table, we would surrender ourselves to you. And Lord, if any of us today find that we do not have such passion, if out of weariness, discouragement, anger, bitterness, disappointment in God, whatever it might be, that fire has gone, that hunger is not there. We would come to your table today and ask you to restore us. We would surrender to you, Jesus, and be your disciples. We would be an Andrew and a Philip and a Peter and John. We would be such people. Come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit right now as the word has been taught to us, draw us to be disciples. And Lord, for us also, give us a longing to make disciples. Every one of us in our own way, eyes that see hungry people and a willingness to invest. Come, Lord. Come, Lord, and do a mighty work today. In our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.